Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are still social distancing. I feel like this has become the opening for all of our episodes, but <laughs> hopefully you you and the family are doing well. How's everything holding up at the Sanderson home? Everybody's okay here. Um, this has been like a weird week for weather, which weather seems to be a big impact on everyone's lives now. So, you know, we had a couple unusually cold nights and Today's gorgeous and warm, and I guess we've got 80 degrees coming. I guess, you know, why not have another crazy roll the dice sort of variable every day? How about you? Same, but I agree with you. Why not? I mean, everything is just completely off kilter. So you might as well throw the weather in as well. But it does, uh, you know, on days like this, it's nice outside. It's Wednesday as we record here. It's a beautiful day and and we are expecting those 80 degree days and certainly wish, uh, you know, you could be at the pool. Yeah, I agree with you. The weather's nuts, just like everything else. Right. I mean, do you think we need to do special episodes on things like murder hornets? Is that is that where we're going next? I, I shudder to think the murder hornets are overblown. So I don't I don't think they're coming to Maryland. I'll, I'll put that out there. I'll put that out there. Let's save. Let's save an episode. Right. So we don't yeah. talk about murder hornets. But we are we are today going to talk about vetoes. And Michael, every year, you know, most of the the legislative work at this time is done. It's over with. But there's always a special day in Annapolis. It's veto day that comes well after the General Assembly has left town. And the veto day was last week. It was on May 7th. And today we're going to go through some of the 37 bills that Governor Hogan vetoed. May 7th was the deadline that the governor had to decide whether to sign veto or allow bills to become law without his signature. So, Michael, we're going to go through some of those today. Yeah, I, I feel like there's enough to unpack from this day. The the bills that got vetoed is interesting and more in volume than we're used to. Actually, the feeling of the day was unusual, and I, we're left with more questions than is typically the case at this point. So I think it's I think it's worth breaking down today, and let's try and get through all of it. Yeah, and I think one thing that was missing, no surprise because of social distancing, was that there were no bill signing events, right? Normally there are a series of bill signings where everyone is sort of herded into the state house. There's a big list of all the bills and you kind of go upstairs, you go get your picture taken with the governor. It's a lot of pomp and pageantry, really a celebration if you were working really hard on a bill. You typically get that opportunity this year, yep. no bill signings. There there weren't any of those days this year. And obviously, again, we're in the area of COVID-19, so it makes sense. It does. And and, and you're right. That, that sort of pageantry is really built into the process. There's an awful lot of stakeholders who take this stuff really seriously. They work through the session on the issue they're focused on or the series of issues they're focused on. And then, you know, they get a day, they circle a day on the calendar, they come down to Annapolis, they get their picture taken. Some lucky person comes away with a pen that was used to sign the bill. And, you know, that becomes a keepsake. 
uh, all sorts of people in Annapolis have these little framed sheet, you know, sheets of paper with the ceremonial bill signing pen. That's it's sort of like its own little Annapolis tradition. I, I think it's kind of a you know kind of a nice one, but um, right. understandably, you know, this wasn't an environment where you want to have four hundred people standing around in the state house and standing in lines and congested areas to go do this. But not only did they not have the sort of public bill signing ceremony, they actually didn't do any bill signings at all, other than a really small scale ceremony a couple of weeks ago on very specific issues. Um, you know, governor didn't even you know arrange a small event with maybe just the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House and the governor, you know, to to do some sort of ceremonial thing. This was all done by press release and paperwork. Right, and. Just to remind our listeners, although the governor did not sign any bills, any bill that he does not sign or veto automatically becomes law on its effective date. And Michael, let's go ahead and remind the listeners of the process here. We did, as everyone knows, have an abbreviated session due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So the General Assembly adjourned after only 71 days in session. Normally, they are there for 90. The legislature, Michael, they must present all past bills except the budget and constitutional amendments, which can't be vetoed to the governor within 20 days. And then the governor may veto any of those bills within 30 days of being presented with the bill, right? Right. So when you do the arithmetic on that process, all these bills got presented to the governor en masse at more or less the time that the, that the legislative session was scheduled to have ended. And that's you know a couple weeks into April. Um, when, when the governor gets 30 days from that window, uh, then you basically circle a date on the calendar and that's decision day. So, you know, May 7th this year was the day and stakeholders like us knew there were a number of things the governor had expressed concerns about. Um, it, it set up for a little bit of, you know, one of these sort of like will he or won't he kind of, uh, you know, kind of speculation over a stretch of time, but, it, it just it, it just felt weird to not have that day. I mean, we're not even in Annapolis. We're doing you know we're doing our work from home as other stakeholders are and legislators are and and much of the governor's staff doing the same. So we're working from home. But I, I don't know. It's it's been kind of a rite of passage to have a few days in April and May when you know you you you've been up there with with uh, people from the nine one one centers at our sure. county governments or our election workers or our tax and finance people or you know these county professionals who worked on issues and they want to come in and be part of a bill signing ceremony. I've done that lots of times too. To just not mm-hmm. have that process felt felt different, but uh, it's you know totally understandable, right? And like and like you said, this is a distinction without a difference. Just because there's not a bill signing ceremony and the bills didn't get signed, if the governor didn't veto a bill, it works out the same thing as if they had gone through the formal signing ceremony. Those bills pass and become law. Right, and you know the governor last month came out and said that he was unlikely to allow any bills with significant fiscal notes to become law. So he sort of set the stage there. But I agree with you, there was a lot of speculation, especially in the circles that we run in, about what the governor would do with certain pieces of legislation. So, I mean, what is your feeling with the governor's announcement last month? I mean, do you feel like he, he did set the stage? Because ultimately, he kind of stuck to his word there. 
I felt like to some degree there there were two trial balloons floated for people like us. We we heard the governor and his his sort of administration leadership uh, make fairly prominent mention of you know we're we're worried about legislation that has a price tag. And I mean effectively I think what they're saying is we know we're having a health crisis that's going to call on the state to spend money that we weren't planning on. It's probably going to mean a dent in our revenues. Although in the month of March and even early April I'm not sure we had the dimensions of how much of a dent in revenues that might turn out to be, but still it's a time for fiscal caution. So I thought it was kind of easy to message, maybe I'll sit on a bunch of bills that cost money or affect the bottom line for this year or for next year. What I also thought was interesting was that informally, I'm not trying to break news here, but informally, I think a lot of us around town heard and gathered a vibe that maybe the governor was preparing to veto almost everything you might i mean right. we've had this conversation i'd heard that from a couple of channels you know in in the month of april that you know the the, the governor himself was somewhat frustrated by the the process for the last several days of the general assembly you know citizens couldn't get in the door to testify on bills um it was tough even to follow things like an online means so we we had heard whispers that maybe sort of in the name of transparency or process, the governor might say, let's just do a redo on all these things that got passed in these last few weird days of this abbreviated session. Uh, I'd heard that for a while. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, the political process of floating a trial balloon to to see what people think, either whether that's in the newspaper or through social media or just whispers around town. That's not a new idea. So I don't know. Folks like us had a while to think about, well, what if everything fails? What if everything gets vetoed? That was a weird thing to speculate on for a while. Right. And, you know, the the other interesting vibe was that, you know, we talked about a lot of scenarios, but nobody really knew. Right. And maybe that is because of social distancing. Normally you get some idea just through whispers around town or you talk to people in the administration. But the veto day was fairly quiet, although it was impactful, as we'll talk about here in a bit. But there really was no ironclad. We know for sure that this is what's going to happen. Right. And, and again, that's just a weird vibe. As you get up to veto day, I feel like normally you have a little bit of a better idea. You know what's going to happen. I mean, we had educated guesses, but, you know, it just it just felt weird. And again, I, I feel like it's just that disconnect because everybody is at home working and it, it's hard to sort of get that vibe when, you, when you're not around people that you're normally around and you're not talking to those people and, and sort of getting that information in person. It, it, it's true. And it's it's a weird thing. I mean, this is descending into like insider gossip here, but there is a very effective Annapolis rumor mill for policy people to just wander around. You, you're walking up Main Street and you have two or three conversations with random other people. You worked with somebody on one issue this session. You worked against somebody else on an issue this session. Now it's the middle of April and legislators have gone home. You run into somebody you know, at Subway or whatnot, and it's like, hey, what do you think's going on over there? And he ends up being a seven-minute stop and chat. And that happens all the time in Annapolis. We're, we're missing 
that sort of social infrastructure. So I felt less informed than usual, but I don't know. The lead up was weird and the finale was weird. We end up with a veto day without a parade of people in Annapolis, without a lot of photography and a lot of pomp and circumstance. And instead, a series of press releases and some, you know, some brief statements from the governor that sort of say, all right, here's what we're doing. Odd circumstances for sure. But what does it mean, Michael, process-wise, when the when the governor vetoes a bill? I mean, we know that this is not the end of the story, right? Yeah, I guess this is this is probably worth it. You know, if if the last time you you thought about this sort of stuff was was watching the how a bill becomes a law show, the the thing on uh, Schoolhouse Rock. Remember, I'm only a bill. Anyway, I don't want to sing the whole. It's a thing. great, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but oh, we'll link it. We'll link it. Yeah, yeah, we should do that actually. Um, anyhow, but in the process, uh, in the legislative process in Maryland, there is you know we mentioned one of our quirks, which is if the governor neither vetoes nor signs a bill, it becomes law anyway. Once the governor decides to veto a bill, you do have a process for a veto override. The General Assembly basically gets another bite at the apple. It's not an absolute veto by the legislature by, by the executive branch. Instead, it requires an even greater consensus with the legislative branch. It takes a three-fifths vote by both the House and the Senate to override a governor's veto. Right. And nearly all of the bills that we're talking about, maybe every bill passed with at least that margin. Right. So that I mean, and that is that's not an unusual thing. The overwhelming share of things that pass through the General Assembly are by absolute consensus or really close to it. You see lots of votes that are 137 to nothing in the House of Delegates. And that's more or less because the bills were not controversial. They were vetted pretty thoroughly in their committee of substance and the conversation on the floor made everybody comfortable. So they passed the bills, um, including some of these things with fiscal effect and some of the policy issues and so forth. So there are some things that happen in a divided way, and there are some things that are partisan. Most things are really close to absolute consensus. So not a big surprise, and particularly mm-hmm. with uh, a supermajority in the majority party in both chambers of the House, not a huge shock that the bills will be talking about as vetoes. I think all of them, but I wouldn't I wouldn't swear to it as being all of them. But, uh, you know, the ones we're talking about, they passed with enough votes to if those votes hold, they can override the veto of the governor. So so think of that process wise ahead. It doesn't doesn't mean it's a sure thing to happen. We have seen veto proof vote, votes on the floor of one chamber or the other erode and and not be there months later for an override. That's happened in the past. So it's not a it's not a, a sure thing. But um, yeah, there, there's there's some uncertainty on that front. But process wise, the legislature gets to take these up again. When you when you talk about not being a slam dunk, I mean, there could be an added level of partisanship that shows up. There also could be, again, we're in the midst of a pandemic this week. We're going to get new revenue projections from the, the Board of Revenue Estimates. And depending on how those look, I mean, you, you may have a situation where some of these legislators are very uncomfortable overriding a veto that would cause the state to spend a lot of money. So I think this pandemic adds another layer of uncertainty. We already know that partisanship can show up. But I I certainly agree with you that it's not a slam dunk. And when the General Assembly reconvenes, Michael, they 
they have to take up these vetoes right away. Is that correct? So we know they're scheduled to come back next January, although there has been a lot of talk about a possible special session. Uh, First, that was going to be in the summer and now potentially in the fall. But that that will be the first order of business. Yeah. So so. Uh, in the event the General Assembly chooses to come back before January and conduct a special session, they would be duty-bound to take up the bills that were vetoed following their last session. So the, you know, all these, these 37 bills that got vetoed in May, they would have them as matters of business to take up during a special session. That might make it tougher to do you know, like a super quick special session, which has sometimes happened. We have we have seen one day special sessions that in effect really lasted an hour that, you know, basically negotiations happen. The bodies come to Annapolis and convene knowing that here's what we're going to do. This package has kind of been, you know, a bunch of handshakes and a bunch of preliminary conversations and public hearings and whatnot. So we're ready to go. We just need everybody in town. So House convenes at 12, Senate convenes at one. We're out of here at three o'clock. That's happened. Um, that seems right. less likely if they've got 37 more things to debate. So that adds its own contour to the decision of a possible special session. But they, if they come back in whatever, September, October, they've got to take up the vetoes then. Okay, so we'll leave it there for process for now. We'll leave it with uncertainty, although we are hearing efforts by special interests to get into the years of legislators, maybe the governor, to try and push some of these issues that we'll talk about down the line here. So that's always something to to keep in mind whenever they do decide to come back, whether it be in the fall or in January. But let's jump in now and take a look at some of the bills that Governor Hogan vetoed last week, Michael. The big one, obviously, is Kerwin, the blueprint bill. No one, I don't think, has talked (laughs) about this as much or has gone into more detail than the Conduit Street podcast has, uh, maybe to... Uh, maybe to our own demise when we're when we're trying to keep people listening here, right? But you can't say that we haven't done deep dives on this bill, on this issue. And we know with Kerwin, Michael, it's at least $4 billion annually once the bill is fully implemented. And that's a big cost for state and county budgets. And I think that's what the governor was concerned with here. There are a lot of policy changes there. We've covered that too. But the county side of this, Michael, is less to do with policy and more to do with money. Right. And I, I don't think we need to go back and double down on, yeah, we're not, we don't want to do a primer here on here are the 39 principal things that are in the bill and walk through it page by page. Um, everybody else out there is doing that. And if you're really interested, there's lots of sources for, for breakdowns of what's in the bill. We've talked about the funding issues in particular and, and done that pretty exhaustively. And really it's the funding issues that drove this veto. Uh, you know, we heard misgivings from the governor all the way back to Mako's summer conference last August, where you know, he was expressing his concern that, you know, isn't there some way to do some of these things without it being, uh, you know, the biggest fiscal consequence legislation that anybody's ever seen in Maryland? We've never done a $4 billion bill in Maryland, no, right? No, no. So, so, I mean, and, and, and that's understandable that that's part of the calculus of whether this is wise policy is whether, you know, the, the, the taxpayers and the, and the budget priorities can, can absorb this. Uh, I mean, I guess all those concerns pre-existing for the governor and what he sees as his policy mandate 
to Marylanders, then you compound it with all this new uncertainty and weakness in the state budget. And I don't know what the governor would have done with the Kerwin bill had there not been this this health crisis that also has a fiscal crisis. We, we'll, we'll, we'll basically never know that, I guess. But whatever concerns he may have had you know, as the bill was getting passed, you have to think that those fiscal concerns have been sharpened and extended by you know the, the short-term problem that we're obviously in the middle of right now. So as he's looking at bills, and we're going to talk about some of them that have a $20 million or $50 million fiscal effect, you know, he's also got to look at this one that has hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars each year ramping up to the biggest fiscal note we've ever seen. And he said, I'm not sure we can commit to that right now, especially, you know, look around, look at, look at the people in line for, you know, for unemployment and people who are not paying taxes and not, you know, buying stuff that generates taxes. We got issues. Right. So, I mean, we know that the General Assembly and the Kerwin Commission spent a lot of time on this bill. Certainly some good policy in there. I think everybody could agree on that. But the bottom line is that it's expensive. And amid this pandemic, it looks like the governor was not willing to commit to that kind of money. Michael, I do think it's interesting that this could be a lightning rod for the ongoing debate. With the pandemic affecting budgets, do they revive the affordability issues that have been raised in the past regarding Kerwin and the Blueprint Bill? Yeah, I mean, we spent some time uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast because we thought this was worth its own segment. And we did, you know, we did sort of a half of a pod and then a little bit of follow up talking about that trigger mechanism, this piece that got amended into the huge bill in the Senate as what turned out to be basically the final compromise on the bill was getting ironed out. A piece got added into the bill basically saying if the fiscal estimates for the state are falling apart, then we take a break on the funding mandates in the bill. And I think we concluded it's it's written a little bit poorly. It takes mm-hmm. a little bit of interpolation to come up with what they probably meant to say and how it's meant to work. Um, but we've already seen for the last few weeks, I mean, there's there's obvious immediate softness in our economy. The possibility of that trigger language happening literally immediately, that that when we come to this coming December and we evaluate what the forecast for Maryland revenues for the next fiscal year looks like compared to, to where they were this past March, is it possible they've plunged enough to set off that trigger and meaning that FY21 funds and FY22 funds are no longer going to be mandated the way they would have been? I mean, that that seems like that's very much in play, um, just, you know, reading the tea leaves of the current economy. So I think it's, I think it brings all this stuff back. Uh, the, the idea of, of this bill, it's been vetoed, and we know a lot of legislators and a lot of stakeholders felt very strongly. So there's going to be a big effort to override the veto and maybe maybe come back to Annapolis and do it soon or stuff like that is going to be in play. But this question about, well, we put in this clause to say if the bill's not affordable, we take a year off. Does that stay in? If, if, if so, right. the urgency of this bill isn't the bill simply isn't as urgent as it might have been because the first year is going to be pushed back. 
Right. I agree with you. I think that, you know, the weakness in this trigger will certainly revive debate about affordability in general. And we'll have to see when the General Assembly does decide to come back, what that means for the fate of this bill and the Kerwin Commission's work in general. If you're counting heads on this bill, which you'd, you'd be right to do, um, there's one tier of this that seems obvious to me. And, and that is, as we commented, as the, you know, as the session was wrapping up, we thought it was noteworthy, and a lot of other people did too. Several Republican senators voted for this bill. And that was not necessarily expected at the beginning of session, but I think the Budget and Taxation Committee made some accommodations that seemed to be pleasing. And I think this fiscal trigger was a meaningful part of that. So right. the, four, the four Republican members of B&T all voted for the bill. They got a couple more of their colleagues within the Republican caucus to vote for the bill. You could lose all those yes votes and still override the veto, but then it becomes a pretty close call. So, you know, that, that, that's not enough vote erosion to put the bill in jeopardy, but it makes it closer that the, the Democrats would need to hold virtually all of the votes that they got. And, and who knows whether this might be a tricky issue. I don't know how many purplish districts are out there where senators might feel some, some degree of buyer's remorse on fiscal grounds here. There are certainly some. So again, it's, it's a wait and see. But I agree. I mean, we talked about it this morning that I think the dynamics have changed for those Republican senators who voted for this bill. Now we are looking at a massive fiscal crisis here in the state. And I don't know whether or not that changes votes, but it certainly, I think, brings things back into play in terms of whether or not the Senate in particular is able to override a veto if they choose to go that route. So very interesting stuff here. And it's, it's interesting how things have changed just in the past month from what we might have been looking at in May otherwise. Fair enough. All right. So with that, we'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some more bills that were vetoed. And we'll come back with some thoughts on a bill that passed but is in play because of veto day. So there's mm. a, a bit of a cliffhanger for you there, like but all that and more after the break. Stuck inside and feeling helpless about the coronavirus? Wish you could do more to help? Well, here's a simple step that can make a difference for the next 10 years. Just fill out your census at 2020census.gov. The census determines how many vaccines we get, how many hospital beds, and how many school lunches. The more people complete their census, the more federal funding we get for all of those things. Please go to 2020census.gov right now and complete your census. That's 2020census.gov. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. We are talking about Veto Day, which was last week, as we record here on May 13th. The governor on May 7th vetoed 37 bills. That was his deadline for deciding whether or not he would sign, veto, or allow bills to become law without his signature. Now, Michael, there's a very interesting twist here, and it has to do with a bill that was vetoed that could affect a bill that wasn't signed, but would otherwise have become law, right? right. And the twist is that the, the governor vetoing the Kerwin bill we talked about on the first half, essentially vetoed the Built to Learn Act. This is the bill we've talked about before. It's a school construction bill. It authorizes the Maryland Stadium Authority to issue $2.2 billion in bonds to supercharge school construction. There's a piece in there that allows Prince George's County to start a P3 pilot program. 
And Michael, this is the bill that the governor and the General Assembly generally supported. Also of note is that getting more money and more flexibility for school construction has been a MAKO priority for many years. As long as I've been at MAKO, it's always been hanging around on our initiatives list. So what is going on here? Why is the school construction bill in jeopardy now because the governor vetoed Kerwin? Well, um, you're right. This is a a curious twist. And uh, the, the school construction bill had a number of supporters. And really, the, the genesis of, of this core idea is with the governor and the administration. They, they're the ones who originally floated this idea of let's take some casino revenue, leverage it to pay off bonds, float the bonds to build schools, and let's clear the deck of all these, these public school projects that are basically ready to go, that we all agree are worthy and they're needed because of growth in population or old and out-of-date schools. Let's go ahead and do the projects now, borrow money while interest rates are really low, and you know, pay it off with casino money. That sounds like a, you know, it was a popular idea. The governor floated this. The General Assembly, I think, massaged the idea and and added some extra components to it. But this was an idea that was that was bipartisan with support. Uh, we saw it pass the House, but not the Senate last year with a lot of whispers that all this stuff was going to get connected in the 2020 session. And that's exactly what happened. These issues ended up being politically connected, connected in the minds of legislators, and more importantly, actually connected in the text of the bill. Right. So the Senate Budget and Finance Committee added an amendment to the school construction bill that makes its effective date contingent on the enactment of the blueprint bill, which is the Kerwin bill, right? (laughs) And- you know, it, it, it's interesting, and it's 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 one of those things where I feel like the Senate understood that the Kerwin bill was likely to be vetoed by the governor, and we're not even talking about COVID yet. I mean, we were starting to see that, but this amendment got added to the school construction bill. I don't know. I mean, what's your read here? Is this is this is just this all political, or is there a reason why you would add that amendment, knowing that the governor likes the school construction bill, knowing that, as you said. This was his idea. The General Assembly took it and massaged it a bit, but everybody seemed to be on board at the end of the day. It passed overwhelmingly in both houses. So I'm interested in this amendment in particular. It did not get a lot of attention at the time, but once the governor vetoed Kerwin, essentially now this school construction bill will not become effective unless they override the veto for Kerwin. So this is weird in a couple ways. I mean, you you set up the, the political play, I think, correctly. Whether this was all about the governor's signing or vetoing the Kerwin bill, or whether this was also an internal play within the General Assembly, um, we'll, again, we we may never know all the all the scheming that goes here. But this is this is relatively common in large deliberative bodies. The idea of okay, we're trying to make this package of things go, you know, pass. And we need the votes to make the whole thing work. Um, you know, Senator, we need your support on this and your colleagues in your jurisdiction. And the senator says, well, actually, the thing we really care about is this other thing on the side. But if you in Congress, you just amend it right into the bill because they don't have rules like the Maryland legislature does for legislation has to deal with only a single subject. That's a law in Maryland. It's not in Congress. It's not in a lot of late state legislatures. But in Maryland, you have to have single subjects, but you can do things like tie the bills together. So 
Sometimes that's done with a handshake. Okay, we'll let that liability bill that you care about, we'll let that bill pass. And once it does, you give us your word, you're going to vote for the bill that we're trying to get passed out of our committee. How's that sound? Okay, it's a deal. We're done. That kind of stuff happens all the time. And here it happened right in black and white that you actually put the text in the bill saying, if you love the school construction bill, and we know a lot of you do, but you might be a little concerned about the Kerwin bill, and we suspect some of you are, you can't get one without the other. If you want to build all those schools up there in Baltimore County, say, then you want both of these bills to pass. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to solve your overcrowding problem. This stuff is part of one big solution for our master plan for what to do with schools for the next decade. And that's, you know, that's basically a political decision. But, you know, was it for purposes of getting votes on on the bill in the Senate or was it for purposes of, you know, you know, of trying to kowtow the governor to veto to uh, to not veto and to to sign the Kerwin bill either or both either way? Um, it's fair game. So the two bills are connected. And I mean, at the risk of going on and on now, we have a timing issue. Because if the Built to Learn Act had just been signed or had been allowed to become law, we would be talking in the next few months about potentially releasing bonds and going right. to the bond market and letting this roll. And instead, you know, we've just talked about what might be the timing for a Kerwin bill. Well, maybe they override a bill in October. Maybe they wait until January. Maybe it's February. And then it takes 30 days after that. That means the other bill is along for that same ride. And you can't do anything on school construction until you have all the I's dotted and T's crossed. Right. And I don't want to go on and on. But quite frankly, that is why I believe the school construction bill did not pass in 2019. They wanted to tie it to Kerwin, which they knew was coming in 2020. So politically, you know, you need those votes and you you, you laid it out very well. You're not going to get one without the other. The other interesting twist here is you mentioned that you're going to leverage casino revenue to float bonds. We know that Maryland's casinos are shut down at the moment and there isn't a date yet to when they're going to reopen. So you're going to see a big drop in casino revenues. I'm not sure how that affects the bond market right. and the ability to, to float bonds here. But that's another interesting twist when you look at this as a whole. Certainly, these two bills being tied together didn't get a lot of attention, but it certainly did once the governor vetoed the Kerwin bill and, and you laid it out. Now the school construction bill is on for the ride with the Kerwin bill and whatever the General Assembly decides to do there. Right. I think that's an interesting asterisk that we, we don't want to spend 15 minutes on. But I mean, if you're out there looking to buy a revenue bond that a year ago, the concept of, hey, you know, all, all they need is $125 million a year to pay the debt service on these bonds. And the casinos are bringing in five, six hundred million bucks a year. No problem. That 125 right. feels very secure. I mean, unless the casinos were to close, which right. now is literally where we are. Um, how might that change the attitude of investors who want to hold these revenue bonds? They don't have a sheet of paper that says the full faith and credit of the state of Maryland is behind these bonds. All they're guaranteed with is, is casino revenues. Right now, as of this month, that's zero. So um, interesting dynamic there. 
Right. And that's, of course, the difference between a GO bond, which is the full faith and credit of the state, and a revenue bond, which you don't get. The other thing, too, is even when the casino is reopened, Michael, who knows how long it's going to take people to feel comfortable enough to go back in there and spend money. But we'll we'll leave that issue there. But it is interesting. The governor also, Michael, vetoed tax increases on vaping and smoking that was projected to bring in about $90 million in new tax revenue next year. Online advertising. This was a very controversial bill. The the fiscal folks at DLS thought it could generate up to $250 million a year, but that was going to face a lot of litigation. And the governor also vetoed, Michael, the 21st Century Economy Fairness Act, which would have applied the state's 6% sales tax to downloads of products like books, music, and streaming services. We've talked a lot about this on the podcast as well. That was estimated to generate about $80 million a year. So not only did the governor veto the Kerwin bill, but I guess you could you could say that he vetoed the revenue package to pay for it. And the interesting thing about the digital download bill or the 21st Century Economy and Fairness Act was that that bill was amended at the end as we knew that COVID was overtaking the state so that the first year of that revenue from the new tax would have been designated to costs associated with Maryland's COVID-19 response. And then in future years, it would have been dedicated to education reforms, which was the original idea. So again, I think that's a situation where you're trying to put a cherry on top and try to assuage some concerns potentially about that bill by saying, look, we're going to dedicate this revenue to COVID-19 in the first year because we know we're going to need the money. But those bills were all vetoed. And that I think could be seen as the revenue package to pay for some of these education reforms that we know are very expensive. I I think that's fair. And I think that's more or less the logic that the General Assembly leadership used in in assembling this package. And as we were sitting four and six weeks into session, we had heard all manner of different revenue raisers being floated in, in one fashion or another. So Okay, you know that 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 I think I think that's fine. the The idea of the governor showing up and vetoing these bills, I would say the fair read here is, you know, number one, he says I'm worried about spending mandates when our economy is this soft. So your first instinct might be, well, okay, so revenue raisers should be fine because we need the we need the resources to pay for whatever those spending mandates would be. The governor's take on it is, okay, you know, the we've got businesses who are shuttered. We've got a lot of people unemployed. And the idea of a new tax or, or an increase in tax rates at a time when our economy is sort of this fragile and this arguably weak doesn't make sense policy-wise. Now, I mean, he got right. elected not being a big fan of taxes anyway. So that that shouldn't be discarded completely. But under the circumstances, I, I think you can look at his decision on what to do with this particular set of bills and kind of understand this isn't the right time to be going for tax increases. Well, we can have that debate another time. Let's let's get through this crisis at the moment, both economic and, and health crisis. Right. I mean, the, the, the counter argument to that, you know, even when you're talking about cigarettes and vaping, which are sin taxes, I mean, you could say, look, the state and the local budgets are hurting right now. We could use the revenue and look, it's just vapes and cigarettes. So we should go ahead and do that. But I agree. I think the governor decided that, especially in this time, even though I don't think he likes tax increases generally, 
but especially right now, is not the time to to pass any sort of tax or fee increase on businesses or on Marylanders in general. I think it's a it's a tough read. Uh, the issue with smoking and vaping and and those being subjected to higher taxes. I mean, sin taxes are always a curious policy question anyway. Uh, having having a tax that also maybe serves to some degree as a deterrent to behavior that on balance we'd rather not have people do. I mean, we'd rather not have people smoke. It has so many consequences for health and whatnot that, you know, it's one of those things. We, if one of the outcomes of having a tax on cigarettes is that fewer people smoke or they do so less often, on balance, we say that's probably a good thing. Um, right. So in this environment, I mean, it's sort of obvious, right? We've got we've got people who are being admitted for respiratory distress to you know, intensive care units of local hospitals. Um, you know, the idea of promoting <laughs> promoting people's good health and healthy choices right now seems like it's connected to the issue of the moment, but the right. economics are troubling too. Uh, there's you know the the populations that are most vulnerable maybe to poor health care and have maybe having just lost health care through their employer might overlap relatively directly with the people who would be the ones being asked to pay more money for a cigarette tax. And I, I, I don't know, this thing has a lot of layers to it. I think it's tricky to sort out. What do you do if you're sympathetic to people of lower socioeconomic station, but you're also concerned about the public health issues of smoking, and you're really concerned about this health crisis that's affecting your community and every place else, Someone calls you up and says, are you OK to override this veto and make sure we increase the tax right now? I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's an easy decision for a legislator who triangulates that way politically. So that's another one that we'll have to keep an eye on and see what they decide to do. So let's get into some more vetoes. This is mostly getting away from MAKO and county issues. The HBCU bill, Michael, um, this would have provided an extra almost $600 million over the next 10 years for the state's four historically black colleges and universities. The whole idea here is to settle a years-long lawsuit against the state for disparity in funding and resources. This is another pricey and high-profile bill. This has been debated over the past few years. There's been a lot of pressure to settle this issue, but this is another one that the governor decided to veto, Michael. And I think the theme that we're getting into is that we're not going to pick and choose on the big-ticket items. We're just going to veto all of them. I, I think that's right. And I mean, the governor had, I think, expressed outward support for let's get this issue resolved. I mean, he had specific proposals and things came through the legislature and there were a lot of people really, really relieved to have what looked like the plan to put this issue to bed and you know, try and make some progress with offerings at, at Coppin and Morgan, UMES and, and Bowie State and try and, you know, try and level the playing field and do right by these institutions, do this over multiple years, but make this commitment and, and, and sort of, you know, get things back on track. A lot of people were really happy about this bill. I have to think there was probably a policy discussion with the governor and his staff about, you know, is this one they can make an exception for? Ultimately, I'm sure your logic you just said is exactly right. They said, 
things that are affecting our bottom line for this year and next year and the next year, we're just in too shaky a circumstance to sign on for a new commitment. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars over the next decade here. It's not as it's not as big and eye popping a number as Kerwin, but still it's a big it's a big fiscal commitment. And they just concluded you can't sign on to that stuff right now. That I think that was their bottom line. Right. It's real money. And Michael, of course, there are some other public safety issues that aren't really MAKO or county government issues, some issues that are more of an ideological fight between the governor and the General Assembly. He vetoed some of those bills as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not really our our stock and trade, but uh, on the list of 37 things, uh, we saw the governor butting heads with legislative leaders, especially the last few weeks of the session about some of his public safety proposals and the legislature rebutting and saying, well, we want to do these things instead. Uh, I think I think the vetoes here are, I think it's fair to assess them as a continuation of that back and forth, that the legislature selected several things and passed them, and the governor wants to reinforce, he says, I think I had worthy proposals on public safety as well. You ignored those and you did these other things instead. I'm going to veto your other things. Let's get back on track with the things that I've proposed. This is relatively normal give and take between an executive branch and a legislative branch, especially when when they're of differing political parties. So not really COVID stuff and not really fiscal crisis stuff. This is principally just differences of policy and priorities. So not Mako stuff. Interesting. There's coverage elsewhere. So, you know, I'll leave it at that. It's part of the dynamic. Right. And I, I do want to get and spend some time on one bill that is our business and is a central county government and Mako issue. And this is a disparity grant bill, Michael. This one, I'm sure, has not made the headlines anywhere, but it is a huge deal for some of our less affluent counties. Again, when you talk about COVID-19 in particular, it becomes a bigger deal. And, you know, I'll set this up for you. I mean, the gist here is that disparity grant funding provides much needed revenues to counties with limited revenue generation potential, even the, even though those counties make effort to raise revenue. And they, you know, they need this money to help fund necessary services such as public safety, schools, infrastructure, community service, all stuff that are central to county governments. And right now, the amount of that grant is capped. There's a sunset for the funding. This bill that was vetoed would have removed that sunset and raised the cap, which would certainly help counties. Mako was a big supporter of this bill. We were really see happy to see this bill move. But, you know, providing more funding to help poor counties so they don't have to keep coming back and asking for the extension of the funding, you know, that's the whole central idea behind this bill. But this is another one. It is not an eye-popping figure uh, in terms of what it would have cost, but it did have a fiscal note. Right. And I mean, on the surface, this can come across like it's just a big giveaway of money to county governments. But you need to put this in context. I mean, this is one of the benefits of having been around in Annapolis for what seems like forever. But I mean, I was literally in the room as they sorted out this idea of the disparity grant. And what this traces back to is the state of Maryland requires counties to do an awful lot of things. We talk about education all the time, but public safety and all of our environmental mandates and doing things like maintaining your local infrastructure and roadways, 
Um, it's just the whole gamut of things that local governments do. It, in most cases, you know, this is an obligation placed upon us by the state. Okay, go do this stuff. And in most cases, that means counties, go do this stuff. That's fine. Um, we have property taxes, and that's that's vehicle number one for county revenues. We don't have sales taxes like most counties across the country do. We don't have a right. share of the state sales tax. We don't have our own local sales tax. What we have here instead is an income tax. And everybody applies an income tax here. We know how that works in general. That's the real workhorse for providing the revenues to be able to do all these things that we owe our citizens and that we're effectively required by the state to do. The weakness in that is when you're poor, you might be at the maximum allowable income tax rate and still not really generating enough revenue because your citizens don't make a ton of money. This is you know, the, the classic sort of economics, economic negative cycle that you don't have the services and so people decide they want to live someplace else and then you end up with a, low, a smaller tax base. Anyway, Maryland does the right thing and says, if you're willing to tax yourselves, but you don't get much bang for your buck, we'll set up this grant program to get you closer to the average. That's what the disparity grant program is all about. Fund your cops, fund your schools, fund your roads, and do it through the income tax. That's a good, fair way to raise local revenues. Maryland is smart in doing this. The, the the disparity grant is an essential way to make that local revenue raising more fair. And when the state applies these arbitrary caps and limits and stuff like that, it's just band-aids that keep the thing from working correctly. This was a good bill to fix some of those deficiencies in that program. And for it to get vetoed on the grounds of we just don't have the cash, I, I, I hate that becoming public policy driven by like temporary tough times. Right. And I mean, especially, I mean, when you look at what this bill would have done, I mean, really it would have enhanced, you know, disparity grant funding for six counties with, again, that proven local income tax effort at the maximum rate, but just don't have the ability to raise enough revenue. And I'll give you the list here. And you tell me a few counties that really stand out, especially when we talk about COVID. This is Caroline County, Dorchester, Prince George, Somerset, Washington, and Wicomico. Two right. of the counties on that list, Michael, have some of the biggest COVID cases in the state. And so to say, we're not going to give you this this much needed revenue at a time where we know you're spending a ton of money to deal with this crisis. And you're doing the right thing by trying to tax your residents, but the money's just not there. I agree. I, I don't like the policy at all. Again, I think it's sticking with the theme of we don't have the money. But, you know, two of those counties in particular have some of the, the biggest impact in terms of COVID cases across the state. I mean, I think you 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 hit the nail on the head there. I, I guess you know mechanically from here, we've already made some comments about you know special interests are going to show up and talk about their bill or their pet issue and that sort of thing. I think this is one of those things that the counties will raise concerns about. I mean, everybody understands fiscal prudence in a time of fiscal crisis is a, is a real issue. Um, to cut off what are really locally generated funds from jurisdiction. I mean, look look at the arithmetic in Wicomico County and in Prince George's County. The idea that funds for those jurisdictions 
you know, could should be held up or could be held up now. I mean, that's the money they need to respond to this crisis, especially as you know, we look to Washington and everybody's shrugging their shoulders, whether anything can happen through Congress. You need everything you can get. And we had a plan anyway uh, to, to move backwards at, at a time like this is really tough to swallow. I could think I could see Mako and the counties raising some concern here. You now, if we get to a special session or if we get to letter writing and the like. Yeah, I certainly agree with you there. So, again, this was a very good bill. It's sad to see it be vetoed. But, Michael, let's talk about another bill that was not vetoed, another very high-profile bill. This is the Pimlico bill. This is another subject area that has been talked about for a couple of years. Obviously, the Pimlico racetrack in Baltimore City is the home of the Preakness Stakes. That is, of course, part of the Triple Crown in horse racing. And this bill uh, allows, again, the Maryland Stadium Authority to issue up to $375 million in bonds to pay for renovations at the state's leading thoroughbred racetracks, including Pimlico, Laurel Park, as well as transferring the Bowie Training Center to the city of Bowie for local use. The whole idea is to keep the Preakness at Pimlico, right? And this is a bill that the governor, again, did not sign, but he let become law. But Michael, what is the, the uh, maybe the argument here that takes it out of the conversation of we just don't have the money, you know, it, why is this one different? Right. I, I think the bottom line here, first of all, certainly there were lots of stakeholders really committed to try and getting something done here. But as far as the point of view of the governor, this bill has a big price tag, but it's like the school construction bill. It's connected to the capital budget. So it's making a big right. dollar commitment in the you know over the years ahead. But it's funded through the capital budget as basically we're going to borrow money and pay for this long term. So it wasn't, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the upcoming FY21 budget. I think if it mm -hmm. had been a cash appropriation, it might have been in play for a governor's veto. But because it was a multi-year thing, I think they, they sort of felt like, you know, we can we can make the multi-year commitment, the short term effect is not, you know, is not as as daunting as with some of these other issues. And again, we do have to mention this one also, I think, is tied to some casino revenue. And again, don't know what's happening with the casinos, but that could come into play for investors who are thinking about scooping up these these revenue bonds. So again, this is another one where I think we'll have to wait and see how this pandemic affects the, the outcome here. Also on that note, the governor also allowed the sports wagering bill to become law. This sort of creates the blueprint for sports wagering in Maryland, assuming that voters authorize sports wagering via referendum uh, at the next election. So the voters will decide whether or not they think it's a good idea. And then you have this bill that is essentially the implementation, how this is going to work, who's going to be eligible for licenses. The governor let that become law as well. So no surprise there. I mean, this one doesn't have a price tag. And and uh, this this bill sort of dodged what might have been, you know, contentious issues and instead just said, you know, here's the general framework for how to do this. Right. So, I mean, we've talked about a lot of vetoes, Michael, and we've talked about some of the bills that the governor did let become law. Again, he didn't sign anything. And we talked about sort of how the process plays out from here. But I want to pick your brain in terms of making some sort of an outlook. I know it's hard to do that, especially when we 
are in the midst of a public health crisis. But, you know, we talked about whether or not there'll be a special session, whether or not they'll just come back in January. But what do you see here in terms of let's talk first about the Kerwin bill? What do you think the outcome there is when the gov- when the General Assembly does decide to come back whenever that might be? Yeah, it's, that's a it's an interesting question anyway. So so ordinarily, here we are a week or so after veto day and stakeholders like us can do some speculation about, okay, are there things that are time sensitive and feel sort of urgent or the political pressure is so high that it would make sense for the General Assembly to make a quick announcement? We're, we're coming back. We'll see you in June for a one day or two day special session. We'll make this easy and we'll come back and override you know, these two bills, right? I mean, we, we've seen that sort of thing happen. Um, sometimes we've seen quick announcements. Okay, we'll do that in January. It'll be the first order of business when we, when we return in January is to override these terrible vetoes. And that's you know, independent of party, independent of the specifics. That stuff happens. Um, number one, we just kind of walked through these tricky bills, some of which the veto override vote might be thicker than meets the eye. You can look and say, well, look, at you know, 33 senators voted for the bill. That's way more than you need. That They can just go ahead and call it up and vote it. I think it's trickier anyway, some of these things because of the fiscal circumstances and whatnot, and just because of the governor weighing in and having his, having his say might very well persuade citizens and might persuade some legislators to rethink their view. And Let's face it, the nuts and bolts of the General Assembly reconvening in Annapolis and having face-to-face meetings and public hearings and taking votes, they really haven't worked out a way to vote from home or vote through you know, the kind of technology that we're using to record this or that committees are having their special meetings on. So you know, we, the nuts and bolts of actually just convening to do a vote is itself complicated. So you can't just announce tomorrow we're coming back in June. No, and I, I think the city of Annapolis extended their stay-at-home order through June. So definitely probably wouldn't be a good idea to come back in June. But yeah, I think the mechanics of the Kerwin bill in whether or not if the governor vetoed it, they would override was interesting prior to this pandemic. But now we talked earlier about some of the votes that the Republicans uh, were on board for this. Maybe that changes because of the circumstances that we're in. It it is really fascinating to see how this plays out, regardless of when they come back. The revenue bills, Michael, the tax bills, that is, again, tied to Kerwin, much like the school construction bill. I think that was generally the way that the General Assembly thought, okay, you say we don't have the money, here's how we're going to raise the money, and the governor vetoed those as well. So I don't know. I mean, in your mind, is it almost they have to override those vetoes if they if they override Kerwin, even though it, it's not the best time maybe to 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 be raising taxes on on Marylanders or businesses? I mean, that adds another dynamic to this, I think. Yeah, it's 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 a substantial unknown. And the likelihood of this getting sorted out soon seems pretty low. I mean, some years the idea would be by now we'd already basically hear what the plan is. So, you know, by the middle of May, everybody knows, okay, there's going to be a a July one day special session. They're going to do it on this particular date and everybody hold your calendars. Don't take vacations that week, blah, blah, blah. 
I, I think the, the the COVID crisis makes sort of the that certainty disappear for right now. So we might be waiting months just to hear what the timing and the plan might be. I I mean, the smart money seems to be that most, if not all, of these bills will have the veto overridden and they will become law. That seems like the sensible place for this to go. Um, you know, is it possible that there are a few victims along the way, either because of fiscal consequences or new wrinkles in the politics? I think it's possible. Um, but I think the more likely outcome is if you were happy to have gotten your bill passed and now you're thinking, what the heck now? Probably going to have to wait. But, you know, come January or maybe come September or whatever, probably will stir up the votes and get them passed. And then they'll be done notwithstanding the governor's veto and and uh, effective 30 days later. I, that's I think that's probably the smart money. But I don't say that with the degree of certainty that in an ordinary year we might have been able to. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. So again, there could be a special session in the fall. They could also come back in January. And again, they need three-fifths supermajority, which the Democrats do have in both houses to override these 37 bills or any bill that the governor did veto. But anything else to add today before we go ahead and sign off? Well, just, yeah, you mentioned the Preakness. In an ordinary circumstance, we would be saying yep. we'd be pouring over the results from the Kentucky Derby right about now. We'd be talking about how our horses spit the bit and messed up our our you know big uh, big fortunes, and instead looking ahead to whether probably to whether Charlatan could be beaten in the Preakness, and he'd be coming to Baltimore as we speak. That'd be pretty exciting times. I don't want to weigh too heavily in on the sports side of things. There's other dimensions of this that are more important, but I don't know. I miss I miss that. That sort of uh, that that routine of looking ahead to uh, to some black eyed Susans, you know. Absolutely. And of course, I probably would have been uh, a lot of money in on a horse that had to travel from overseas and didn't even make it out of the gate and just <laughs> flushing my money down the toilet. And you would laugh and laugh and laugh. So maybe at the end of the day, I'm saving some money there. But I agree. I mean, just any sense of normalcy would be a good thing at this point. I'm certainly eager to get some sports back, of course, when it's safe to do so. And that is far down on the list of things we should be worrying about. But it is weird as as we would be right now looking forward to the Preakness and the horse would be flying in and there'd be all this pomp and circumstance that, you know, we're not seeing it this year. So I agree. It, it's It's weird times for sure. Absolutely. All right. So we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to you. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog, which has been filled to the gills lately with a lot of great content. But until next week, Kevin signing off for Michael, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>